Okay, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you again for another day just to be alive, courtesy of your grace, as vessels of mercy. We thank you for using us. Even though we're unworthy, you've created us new in Christ and given us power to bring you glory. Father, we ask right now that you bless those that are sick and struggling that wish they could be here right now. We ask that you give them both physical and spiritual strength from you, from your spirit, and from your word. Father, we're also thankful, especially for your son, Jesus Christ, that you gave him up for us 2,000 years ago at the cross so that all this is possible and our new life is possible. Father, we ask that you bless this message, guide us by your Holy Spirit, teach us what you want us to know and understand this evening. We ask these things in Christ's precious name, and it's by the power of your Spirit we pray. Amen. A good name is to be more desired than great wealth, part two. A big part of having a good name with God and man is doing what you say you're going to do. Uh, that's an emphasis that's come up a lot in the last two lessons. A big part of having a good name with God and man is doing what you say you're going to do. It's real easy, uh, and in the past I've done this myself, to use grace as a cop-out. That you're under God's grace so that maybe you don't need to do what you say you're going to do. And it's obviously a wrong way of thinking. But um, this is something that God's been harping on with us in different ways for a while now. Having integrity to the Word, for example. Um, a big part of having a good name with God and man is doing what you say you're going to do. And if you don't intend to do it in your heart, and you know your heart when you make a commitment to someone or a verbal agreement with someone, you know if in your heart at that very moment you're saying, eh, I don't really have to keep this, but I'll say what I need to say in this situation. You know if you're doing that. And if you are, what God is saying is, close your mouth and don't make that vow or that commitment. There are a lot of ramifications that go along with these type of commitments. Otherwise, you might spoil your name and therefore your opportunities to share the Lord's truth with others. The reason a good name is good or is good to have is not for selfish gain, but for the Lord's gain and for the benefit of others. Let me say that one again also. The reason a good name is good to have is not for selfish gain, but for the Lord's gain and for the benefit of others. So we're not talking about having a good name for your own benefits, for businesses' benefits in the world, a worldly reputation. The Spirit's been telling us that's not what we're talking about, and that is not really a good name. We're talking about building a reputation as a man or a woman of God. Amongst your peers, um, it could be amongst strangers or, or acquaintances, and it could also be amongst 
intimate members of your family. Could be church family, um, your earthly family that you've been given. We're talking about building a reputation as a man or a woman of God. And even if you're scoffed at for it, that's the good name to have and hold on to. So turn again in your Bibles to Ecclesiastes 5.4. It starts with God and keeping our word to God. And then it goes on to man as well. And we're going to see a lot today, too, an emphasis about having a good name with God and man. So first of all, with God in Ecclesiastes 5.4, When you make a vow to God, do not be late in paying it, for he takes no delight in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Pretty simple, right? But also pretty serious in God's eyes. This is directly related to our own good name. And if we can't keep a vow, just think about this for a minute. If you can't keep a vow that you made to God Almighty, how are you going to keep vows or commitments to man? Your fellow sinful man. So it's a personal accounting in our own soul. It's very personal, but very serious in God's eyes, as we just read in Ecclesiastes 5. Our main passage has been in Proverbs 22.1, in the Amplified here, a good name earned by honorable behavior, godly wisdom, moral courage, and personal integrity is more desirable than great riches, and favor is better than silver and gold. Is that your belief? Is that your perspective in your soul and your heart? Do you look at it that way? If you've got to be honest, there's temptation to put silver and gold higher on your wish list, so to speak, or on your priority list than your good name. That's how we've been brainwashing this country from five years old. That's a good name, right? To be rich, to be wealthy, to be known for that, which we're going to get to again later. On the board, Proverbs 22.1 in the New Living Translation. Choose a good reputation over great riches. The emphasis on the word choose. Why? Because it's actually a challenge. It's actually a real choice to be made when you consider the flesh and those temptations. Choose a good reputation over great riches. Being held in high esteem is better than silver or gold. How we handle our contracts and commitments will directly reflect on the Lord's reputation. Do you think about it that way? Do you value and uh, guard and treasure your reputation because it's going to reflect on the Lord? If not now, someday. Because many times the people you and I will deal with either know you're a Christian or they will find out you're a Christian. We don't think of that when we're giving the old handshake and making a deal or an agreement, a verbal commitment to somebody. 
we don't think of that, especially because of the way we were brought up in America, as those things are, you know, lightly esteemed. Many times the people you will deal with either know you're a Christian already or they will find out one day that you're a Christian. It's amazing how short-sighted we can be sometimes. We don't think about this. It's so easy. The flesh says, it's not that big a deal. I mean, you know, it was a simple agreement. It wasn't about something really serious. But aren't the little things very important to God? Our flesh says, oh, they'll never know. I'm going to make this agreement because it's, it's expedient. It's helpful to me to make this agreement right now. But they'll never know if I don't keep it. But of course God does. And he looks at that as serious. Being a man of our word is better than gold in the spiritual life. Which is what we just read in Proverbs 22.1. Being a man of our word is better than gold in the spiritual life. And in our dealings with both God and man. So this is going to be a regular emphasis. Turn to Proverbs 3 verse 1. So that we can look at a passage the Lord gave me this morning. Proverbs 3 1. My son, do not forget my teaching. Proverbs 3 1. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Do not let kindness and truth leave you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Why? Look at verse 4. So you will find favor and good repute in the sight of God and man. You will find favor and good repute or reputation in the sight of God and man. On the board, look at Proverbs 3, 4 in the Amplified. So, you shall, uh, so shall you find favor, good understanding, and high esteem in the sight or judgment of God and man. There's someone else who was very aware of this wisdom in Proverbs 3. And by living it out at a young age, he built a good name for himself before he began his ministry. Hold your thumb in Proverbs 3 and turn to Luke chapter 2. Luke 2, 51. Again, being a man of our word is better than gold in the spiritual life in both dealings with God and man. Luke 2, 51. And he, Jesus, this was the 12-year-old Jesus, he went down with them and came to Nazareth, and he continued in subjection to them, his parents. And his mother treasured all these things in her heart. First of all, notice how the Lord's obedience, he subjected himself to them. Notice how the Lord's obedience affected his mother. She treasured these things in her heart. They were good. They were truly good. It was beautiful, his obedience. And then in verse 52, Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God 
and men. Like Proverbs 3, 4. With God and man. If anyone had a good name, it was Jesus. And because he always kept his word, his reputation was glowing. Talk about letting your light shine. His reputation was glowing with God and men. And guess what? He built that, rep he established that reputation, that goodness with God and men before his ministry began years later. Talk about having a seat at the table. It was better and more valuable than gold. It affected eternal things and therefore carries with it eternal riches. Think about that. Here was a main point of focus on Sunday on the board. A truly good name is always a function of faith. Hebrews 11, for example. A truly good name is always a function of faith. Faith in the Lord and faith in His Word. So go back to Proverbs 3, verse 3, and let's see this connection as well tonight. A truly good name is always a function of faith. Living in faith. Trusting the Lord. Proverbs 3.3 3, Do not let kindness and truth leave you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. So you will find favor and good repute in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your paths straight. So there we see it's faith that will help you keep your word to both God and man. You have to do it by faith. You have to trust God's got your back, even when maybe you're going to miss out on something by keeping your word. You're making a sacrifice. Like that car example Pastor brought up on Sunday when that guy made the mistake. And he held his word, right, to, to sell the car for $7,000 cheaper than it should have been. That's a sacrifice. That's a price to pay. But by faith you do that. You say, God's going to cover me. I've got to keep my word because this is ultimately for Christ's reputation so that I don't get in the way and make him look bad as a Christian. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and watch what happens in your dealings with man. This could be with, in all kinds of situations in, in life. You might lose something or sacrifice something by keeping your word, but God promises to reward you, and in a better way, as only He can do it, in ways you never would have thought of. You keep your word, you follow through on your word, you watch God bless you in another way you hardly imagined. That really, you have to say, is supernatural that you never would have thought of. It was better than what you even thought of possible, the situation coming out as. And then you know what you'll have is a long-term seat at the table with those people. With those people that you stuck with your word over time, for example, you followed through on a promise. Maybe it took you longer than you hoped or planned. Life happens. But you followed through on your promise. And you now have a long-term seat at the table with those people that you didn't let down, even though maybe you very easily could have. And you do that for the sake of the Lord and maybe for the sake of their eternal life. 
How many people in the world today have turned away from God and Christ because a so-called Christian screwed them? Maybe intentionally or unintentionally. That's at least their perception. They, they supposedly believe in God, and look what they did to me. It can't be real. He can't be real. It may even affect somebody's eternal life, folks. Not that salvation ever depends on us, but we have the opportunity to be used positively for their eternal life and possibly negatively. Obviously, God can overcome anything, but do we want to be that person that brings somebody down, that turns them off from Christ? On the board, again, a truly good name is always a function of faith, living in faith. Trusting God will take care of you as you keep your word. Turn again to Hebrews 11, verse 1. We're going to learn, learn some lessons from this chapter, again, that we read on Sunday. Hebrews 11, 1 is proof that a truly good name is always a function of faith. All these people in Hebrews 11 established a good name with God and with men because they chose to walk by faith in the Lord. They trusted the Lord. Hebrews 11.1 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, faith, the men of old gained approval. Huh, what do you know? By faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous, God testifying about his gifts. And through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. Now, does Abel literally still speak to us? Obviously not. He's dead. He's in heaven. He's resurrected. So what speaks? Isn't it his name? The very name, Abel, makes you think of his righteousness in his gifts towards God. Verse 5, By faith Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death, and he was not found because God took him up. For he obtained the witness that before his being taken up, he was pleasing to God. Why was Enoch so pleasing to God that God didn't even want him to go through physical death? That he resurrected him or raptured him, if you will. It was because of his faith. His trusting the Lord. And so we have a Hebrews 11.6. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Again, this is why on the board, a truly good name is always a function of faith. It's impossible to please God otherwise. Look at verse 7. By faith, Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen, in reverence prepared an ark for the salvation of his household, by which he condemned the world, and became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. By faith, Abraham, when he was called, 
obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. For he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. By faith, even Sarah herself received ability to conceive, even beyond the proper time of life, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, there was born even of one man, and him as good as dead at that, as many descendants as the stars of heaven in number, and innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. All these died in faith, without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance, and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. This right here is another thing that brought them all a good name. The end of verse 13. Having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. That's how all these people lived their lives. As strangers on the earth as foreigners, as unaccepted even, not accepting the world and the world's ways. By faith they rejected being one of the world, considering themselves strangers and exiles in this world. Remember on the board, 1 John 2.15, Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the, the love of the Father is not in him. That means not pleasing the Lord. That means not living by faith. You want to be well-pleasing to the Father? Carry a good name that cares about His business and not the world's business. Carry a good name that cares about His business and not the world's business. And be willing to confess to whoever wants to know that you are a stranger and an exile on this earth as it says there in verse 13. They confessed. <laughs> that's, a, that's a verbal commitment. That's your, your word again. They confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. To whom they did that, to how many people they did that, we won't really know. But are we willing to confess that to people and to look like fools for doing so? I'm not of this world. I'm a stranger in exile here. I'm not living for this world. I'm living for the next and first of all, do you believe that with your own heart first or in your own heart first, that you are a stranger and an alien here? Is that, what you, is that what your heart believes or is your heart holding on to making a real life for yourself here on this earth? Look at verse 13 again. All these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For those who say such things, here it is again, remember Psalm 107? Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. For those who say such things, make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. When you say such things, you are giving your word, and your word is tied to your name, intimately. So those who say such things, 
such as, I'm a stranger here, I don't belong here. They make it clear that they're seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. It was he to whom it was said, In Isaac your descendants shall be called. He considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which he also received him back as a type. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau, even regarding things to come. By faith, Jacob, as he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph and worshipped, leaning on his staff. By faith, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the exodus of the sons of Israel and gave orders concerning his bones. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Do you see the name that Moses rejected? The son of Pharaoh's daughter. That was a name he could have taken and kept and held on to, that he rejected. Choosing, in verse 25, is that word choosing again? Choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Considering the reproach of Christ, greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. You might as well say the name of Christ, right? His name, if you choose to stick with his name, you're going to, you're choosing greater riches than the treasures this world is going to offer you and give you if you put aside his name. Considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, the world. For he was looking to the reward. There's a major choice for us to make every day, folks, like Moses did. Again, on the board, Proverbs 22.1 in the NLT. Choose a good reputation over great riches. Being held in high esteem is better than silver or gold. Again, 11.27 of Hebrews. By faith, he left Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is unseen. That should sound familiar. Moses, by faith, left Egypt, didn't fear the wrath of the king. He endured as seeing him, God, who is unseen. Look back at Hebrews 11, verse 1. Now faith, what is faith? Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. That's exactly what we read in Hebrews eleven twenty-seven. Go back to verse 27. By faith, he, Moses, left Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is unseen. How do you see someone who's unseen? One way only, by faith, by trusting 
the word of the Lord. By faith, verse 28, he, Moses, kept the Passover and the sprinkling of the blood so that he who destroyed the firstborn would not touch them. By faith, they passed through the Red Sea as, as though they were passing through dry land. And the Egyptians, when they attempted it, were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab the harlot did not perish along with those who were disobedient after she had welcomed the spies in peace. And what more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection, and others were tortured, not accepting their release so that they might obtain a better resurrection. Do you know when a prisoner, when a Christian prisoner has the chance to accept their release, what's the condition usually? What do you think the condition is? It's to deny the name of Christ. If you deny the name of Christ, if you give me a word that you're going to deny his name from now on, I'll let you go. That happened in the book of Acts with the apostles. That happens with Muslims in today's world that threaten to kill a Christian, but they say, you know what, if you deny Christ, I'll let you go right now. What's it about? All about his name. All about his name. Look at this verse again, verse 35. Women received back their dead by resurrection, and others were tortured, not accepting their release, so that they might obtain a better resurrection. There's a test that one day we, we might face in some way, shape, or form. To deny his name so we can escape a situation or to stick with his name and be persecuted for it. And if we choose to stick with it, there is such a thing as a better resurrection. So this came up as I was reviewing my notes this evening. Um, and I don't even have this verse in my notes, but I want to turn there in our Bible. So I've got my Bible turned to... Uh, Revelation 2.17. I want to remind you of a couple things that the Lord says to the churches in Revelation 2 and 3. Again, what does it say in Hebrews 11.35? That they might obtain a better resurrection. Look at Revelation 2.17. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone, which no one knows but he who receives it. You think names aren't important? And you think God doesn't want to give you a new name when you stick with his name on earth despite persecution? He never forgets to reward those who seek him. Again, that's where faith comes in, right? 
and look at he, uh, Revelation 3, 11 through 13. Jesus says, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have so that no one will take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will not go out from it anymore. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You think names aren't important? You think God will forget your name when you refuse to forget his name on earth? Totally the opposite, of course, because he's so faithful. So again, verse 35, Hebrews eleven thirty-five. Women received back their dead by resurrection, and others were tortured, not accepting their release, so that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others experienced mockings and scourgings, yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. Why is this? Again, it's because they kept the name of the Lord. If they denied his name, they would have had a quote-unquote easy life, at least not be tortured like they were. And all these, verse 39, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised, because God had provided something better for us, so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. See, God always has something better, as in verse 35, a better resurrection. So again, the point on the board, a truly good name is always a function of faith. From living by faith in what the Word of God says. All these names we just read about in Hebrews 11 are considered good. By God and men. The question for each of us that came up on Sunday is, at the end of our lives, will we be able to say the same thing? Will we be able to say we have a good name in God's eyes and man's? Will, we be able to, will God be able to say that about us and give us that new name we just read about in Revelation? And notice I said at the end of our lives. At the end of our lives, will we be able to say the same thing about our name? Not now. What you've done in the past can't be changed. How many times you've broken your word in the past can't really be changed. But going forward, you can go forward living in your word, regarding your name as gold in God's eyes, that doing the right thing in all circumstances you're aware of, maybe even correcting past mistakes if possible. You might be able to go to someone and, and ask forgiveness from something years ago. You might still have that opportunity. You might be able to clear up debts where you didn't keep your word financially to certain people or companies. You might be able to correct those past mistakes. You can do that from now going forward as Pastor brought up on Sunday. 
So at the end of your life, what's God going to be able to say about your name? You're still alive means you still have an opportunity to bring tremendous glory to God and result, that results in receiving peace from God as well in this life and eternal blessings. On Sunday, we saw the demands that the Word of God places on a pastor. On the board in 1 Timothy 3.7, in the Amplified, he must have a good reputation and be well thought of by those outside the church so that he will not be discredited and fall into the devil's trap. Discredited in front of who? Others who might stumble because of his bad decisions. Why do we care about others? We don't care about what others think about us per se, but we care because it will affect their spiritual well-being and their attitude toward Christ himself. Do we look at it that way? You, you realize how fragile some people's faith is? Some people that are observing your life that may or may not be a believer, do you realize how fragile faith can be? Like that should be our attitude. That's why we should be so guarded and guarding our, our name to make sure it reflects Christ, that it shows the light of his love, not a backstabber not a liar or a deceiver or someone who doesn't keep his word and therefore affecting Christ's name. If we remain here on earth to spread the gospel, which we do, why make it harder on ourselves by living in disobedience? And why cast a shadow on Christ's name? And why make it harder for others to receive the message, to accept it? Foolish, right? Why do we do it then? Because we're selfish. We want what we want. So the word is encouraging us to guard and build our good name for the Lord's sake, ultimately, for his name's sake. And this question came up on Sunday as well. When people hear your name, even unbelievers, what might their response be? Might be a scary question for some of you. Pastor gave us two scenarios on Sunday which should make us think. On the board, what's your name say to others? Is it number one? Boy, I love that guy. He's so much fun at parties, especially when he's drunk. Or is it number two? Man, I can't stand that guy. He's always talking about Jesus, and he refuses to hang out anymore. What do people say about you? What do people say when they hear your name uttered by another person. The first person loves you, but for ungodly reasons, right? And who doesn't want to be loved? But if it's for ungodly reasons, we know that's not good. The second person can't stand you anymore, but for the right reasons, for divinely good reasons. So it's obvious which one is better. Then the all-important question came up on Sunday, Shall we allow likability to be the foundation of our reputation? Listen up, flesh. Are you going to let the flesh get in your way? Are you, are you going to stay in the way or get out of the way? Are we going to allow likability to be the foundation of our reputation? It's tempting because you know what? Life is easier. And this was probably 
this was and probably still is one of my weaknesses, just sharing. I always wanted to be liked by everyone as a young man. My flesh leans that way, and I was willing to bend my convictions to be accepted by others. Makes me want to puke now, but wanting to be liked can be a distraction to integrity to God and his word. It's a temptation for some more than others, maybe. So on the board, regarding your reputation, the Bible says we ought to have a good name by Bible standards, not by world standards. Our reputation should precede us, and that is that we are a man or a woman of God, and we stick to our word, and we stick to his word. Isn't that the reputation you want? That people say this about you, even if it is with disdain by some people? That you're a man or woman of God and you stick to your word and God's word. We saw what divine wisdom says on Sunday on the board in Proverbs 16, 19. It is better to be humble in spirit with the lowly than to divide the spoil with the proud. Who wants to hang out with the lowly? Your flesh doesn't. The poor, the meek, the, you know, less esteemable. But it's better to be humble in spirit with the lowly than to divide the spoil with the proud. Turn to 1 Peter 3.14 again. 1 Peter 3.14. Again, the Bible says we ought to have a good name by biblical standards, not by worldly standards. 1 Peter 3, 14. But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you yet with gentleness and reverence. And keep a good conscience, so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ, you know, you keep your word, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better, if God should will it so, that you suffer for doing what is right, rather than for doing what is wrong. Again on the board, your reputation matters. It's better to have a reputation that renders you unlikable and pleasing to the Lord than to have one that renders you likable but displeasing to the Lord. And we mustn't give in to the pressure of our flesh to want to create another name for ourselves other than the God-given name that we've received. As came up on Sunday, most men in this world are enslaved to the idea of wealth and being known by it. That's your reputation, what you have, your possessions, your wealth. People in general look for a substitute name or title because they feel badly about who they are. And that makes sense without Christ, right? Maybe they want to be known as the rich guy. You know, that guy that has that possession, that thing. Remember that guy we golfed with? They don't even know his name. Just that, that rich guy we golf with. The one we want to be like because of his wealth. And we talked on Sunday about finding a name. 
If a person doesn't love themselves, they will often find a surrogate name for themselves. The end goal is to be thought of in terms of their wealth, not their person. It's a show of moral weakness and a fragile constitution. And I was thinking about it. You know, there are other examples of this as well besides wealth, if we're honest. It could be success. It could be power or other substitutes that people rely on for self-esteem because they're not happy with who they are. Now, the important point is, for us, if you're a believer and you're insecure with your name, you're giving in to the wrong perspective. You're listening to the flesh. Because the Bible says you've been uniquely and wonderfully made by God to be you. And no one else is like you. No one else can live out your life and bring glory to God with what God gave you and the name he's given you. Nobody. How special is that? Like, we don't look at it that way, though. How special is that? It doesn't matter what you think your weaknesses are or the things you don't have are. It matters that God made you totally unique. There's no one that can bring glory to God like you other than you. I'm trying to say it different ways, but I hope you realize how special it is that whatever situation you're called or whatever your weaknesses are, your, your fleshly insufficiencies are, God made you that way for a reason. And he wants you to bring glory with, uh, to him with the name you've been given. God is calling you to build a good name. Turn to Psalm 139, verse 13. Psalm 139, 13. God is calling you to build a good name in the uniqueness of whom he created you to be. We tend to not like ourselves because we compare ourselves to others all the time, right? He's got that. I wish I had that. She's got that. I wish I had that. That quality or whatever. That's what we all do. Meanwhile, other people are admiring qualities we have that God gave us, but we don't see those, do we? Because when self-pity or whatever, we look at the things we want that we don't have. How about the things God gave you that are unique to you? Why aren't you like rejoicing in those and using those and bringing God glory with that? No one else has it exactly like God gave it to you. Psalm 139, 13. For you, God, formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret, and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. It should be very personal that God created you, and he created you uniquely. So much of our spiritual growth is dropping our wrong perspectives once the Spirit shines light on it. If you have a wrong perspective about your name or your person, drop it right now like a stone. Stop doing that as a Christian, as a believer in Christ. Stop holding on to that wrong perspective. Drop it and walk away. And embrace the uniqueness that God's given you and that you're a new creature in Christ. 
Because only you can bring God glory with what he's given you. So as came out on Sunday also on the board, the Lord wants each of his children to live up to their given name. Each one uniquely. I hope you embrace it and rejoice in it. And love yourself as Christ loves you. So changing gears, we only have a few minutes left. Um, What we've already seen by going back to the book of Genesis is that God has given us man, the naming process, and even our names. And since it's a gift given by God to man, it is intrinsically good. And think about what a privilege it is that God gave to man to name all creation. Like a parent giving his child the opportunity to name the new pet. How excited is that little child? You mean I can name him whatever I want to? Go right ahead. Pretty funny if they name him something really strange, right? And the parent has to step in. But this is what God did for man. He didn't have to do this. What a privilege. What a show of love and trust even. That's what God did for man. So on the board, we talked about the value of a name. God has placed a special intimacy in each of us reserved for knowing another person's name, as if bonding cannot be consummated in the absence of it. It's funny how eagerly we want to know somebody's name if we just meet them or we're told about someone or we're introduced to someone. The first thing we want to know is their name. There's great value in our name from when we first meet someone and all throughout our whole relationship with them, possibly for our whole lives. And think about this, everybody. Think about this, okay? We live in a crazy, sick world right now, right? Think about this. People are looking for a name they can count on more than ever. People are looking for a name, a person, that they can count on, that won't stab them in the back, that will keep their word to them. Isn't that true? Be that person for others. For the sake of the name of Christ. Again on the board, God gave the man naming ability. God enjoyed seeing his own creature, the one made in his own image, name those creatures subservient to himself. And on the board, God has given man the authority to name in Genesis 2.19, and whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. And the Lord even let Adam name his mate. The Lord didn't have to do that. Certainly, the woman was created in God's image, right? Just like the man. But he let the man name the woman on the board. The first man, Ish, named the first woman, Isha, woman, because she had her root in him. Notice that the authority to name was given to the man, not to the woman. So we're back to authority and even delegation of authority. We must take note as we close of God's order in Holy Scripture and live by it since God knows what's right and what's best for each one of us. So regarding authority orientation, this is really important to remember. It's impossible to have a good name by God's standards if you buck his system of authority. How are you going to claim a good name Or how are people going to think you have a good name when you go against God's system of authority? 
after our authority orientation to the Lord himself, the next most important authority system is found in the God-given family structure. The Spirit asked us men to consider that as husbands, if we don't give our wives something godly to respond to, we're leaving them open to the seductive influences of the kingdom of darkness, just like the woman in the garden. Adam kind of left her stranded to listen to the serpent. Women are created to respond. So we were encouraged to not leave the door open for suitors to come in and whisper in the ear of the woman, of our wives. Other things and other people will try to captivate her soul. Now we're going to close with one verse in 1 Corinthians 7. Go to 1 Corinthians 7, 1. Adam showed us the failure of man in letting the woman be seduced by another, by not even being with her possibly, by not leading as he should have as the husband. But also, for husbands and wives, you must also realize the kingdom of darkness is after your spouse. Satan will do whatever he can to entice people away from their marriage and family and their God-given roles, whether it be man or woman, whether it be husband or wife. This passage came to mind in 1 Corinthians 7, 1. Now concerning the things about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. But because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife and each woman to have her own husband. The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, also the husband does not have authority over his body but the wife does. Stop depriving one another, except by agreement for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. And come together again, talking about sex, come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Just as there are seducers out there going after your spouse's soul, Satan will use sexual temptations to break up a marriage. And if husband and wife don't take care of one another in this area, they're opening up the door for the serpent to come whispering in whatever form or shape he takes, if you get my drift. This is why the word here is telling us to take care of one another, even sexually in marriage, so that we don't leave the door open for Satan's schemes to take advantage of our weaknesses in the flesh. For us to ignore the weakness of the flesh is foolishness. For us to pretend it doesn't exist is foolishness. That's why Paul wrote this. That's exactly what Satan would like you to be in denial about and ignore so that he has a way in. Again, look at verse 5. Stop depriving one another except by agreement for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of control. Are you going to give Satan an open door into your marriage? 
don't know how many of you remember the movie The Firm, which came out many years ago now. It's time flies. Um, it was about an attorney in this huge law firm. And they set the man up by tempting him into adultery so that they could control him by the illicit photos they took of him. They set him up. They put him in the most vulnerable situation they could think of. They brought in the most attractive woman they could think of while he was weak, while he was drunk, etc., so that he would now be their puppet. Do you not think Satan would love to do that to someone in every marriage, especially of believers? This goes on in our world today. In big business, this type of stuff I just described from the movie, the amount of evil, the amount of schemed attacks upon individuals and marriages for some other type of gain, how much more would Satan like to do this? And don't forget, in verse 5, Satan is mentioned. Not even the kingdom of darkness. It's kind of interesting. But this is a very real thing. And this is something that we have to guard and protect, uh, marriage being so precious to the Lord. But again, uh, it's the man that's been designed by God to lead the way. So we'll end this way regarding the family structure. A wife's performance in her marriage is fundamentally a function of her husband's performance. In other words, it's usually the man's fault. Colossians 3, 18 and 19. Wives, be subject to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. Let's bow our heads. Father, we thank you so much for your divine wisdom that you've made available to us through your word and your spirit's guidance. We ask, Father, that you help us live in these principles by faith. We know that's what pleases you. Help us not walk by sight, but by faith. And to live in all these commands so that we can have peace with you and bring glory to your name. We ask that you help us, Father, bring these things out to those in our periphery, to the lost and dying world around us that needs it so desperately. We ask these things in Christ's precious name, by the power of your spirit. Amen.